The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Wednesday, April 29th, 2020, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, 2 o'clock p.m. California Time, which is relevant to our guest. Boris Johnson announced the birth of a son today. Uh, Kim Jong-un is still dead or still alive, depending on which intelligence services you believe. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we have an actual presidential visit. Um, Tomas Ilvis was the president of Estonia until the end of 2016, if memory serves. He got out of office and has been at Stanford University ever since. Uh, he is the only current or former head of state to have publicly endorsed my uh, challenge to Putin for a physical fight. Um, and critically importantly, he is the leader, the, the, the president of any country, to my knowledge, who pioneered the personal use of Twitter by the president to engage with citizenry. So let me just start there, uh, President Elvis former President Elvis, when you see Donald Trump uh, uh, tweeting, do you think to yourself, oh my God, I've created a monster. This is like, I am Dr. Frankenstein and I created this beautiful thing, individual presidential use of Twitter, only to see it rise up and attack or do, does, does it feel unconnected to you? Well. You know, I mean, um, how to put this, you know, actually there, there are a lot of, I don't know if a lot of presidential Twitter accounts, but certainly uh, enough official accounts of prime ministers, presidents, ministers that are incredibly boring. And they just sort of uh, give some kind of news about, I met with so-and-so today or so, I mean, in that sense, he is sui generis in terms of actually expressing his views on things. Uh, I do miss the lack of uh, verbal facility and no puns coming from there. But uh, other than that, yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think he, um, well, from what I understand, I mean, he was doing this long before he became president. So he just continued in the same vein. Right, but I mean, your Twitter feed was, I think, different from the uh, average presidential Twitter feed in that you manned it yourself, as best as I can tell. Yes, yes, and I did. you you and you used it as a way of engaging the citizenry of Estonia and worldwide. I mean, you and I had exchanges when you were president, and um, and it was part of a understanding, I think, of your role of trying to be very accessible. And there's some sense in which the only president I know of who's imitated that 
is Donald Trump, only in this bizarre, and when you did it, it was kind of this very attractive um, form of intellectual engagement that was flat in the, in the, per, you know, in the organizational sense, but it was really intellectually compelling. When the, when Trump does it, of course, it's, it, it's debasing. And I, I guess I'm just interested in your thoughts on the relationship between, if any, between what you were doing and what Trump is doing. Well, first, let me say that not everyone in my country thought it was very thrilling. They thought it was unbecoming of the president to be on Twitter. Did they? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning. But, uh, well, in general, uh, I didn't attack people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, did you have rules? Like, was there like a, an unwritten constitution of the president's Twitter feed? No, I, it was strictly what I thought was and continued to think what I, I should and should not do. And, um, and of course, my staff was appalled, but. <laughs> I kind of want to hear more about that. How was your staff appalled? I mean, I, I like if I was in Trump's staff, I would be appalled. But like I've looked at your Twitter feed. It doesn't seem that appalling. No, the very idea. The very idea of it. Like it just was like how the norms have changed between right. like the very idea of that level of transparency with right. uh, the electorate. And so and the and the media for a long time had a hard time dealing with it as well because it, it just seemed too odd. But later and to this day it was more of a source of news for for at least Estonian media for me to to read I tweet things and I I mean yeah I, I don't know I never thought of it as being anything that uh, that bizarre but that's why I did it I guess because I thought it was kind of like the way to do things and um, certainly better than boilerplate press releases which is what a lot of them do but I, I think that in, there will be more and more of a demand for people to be open and accessible in that way. Uh, but so far, when I read the Twitter feeds of most people uh, in in governance, they it tends to be basically a a shortened press release uh, with a picture of two people shaking hands, which doesn't really. I mean, they're kind of boring. You kind of feel like you go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm kind of interested. Like, do do you remember any particular moment like that came out of you having kind of this very hands-on, like non, non, if like non, like PR effacing relationship that Twitter provided with people in your electorate that allowed you that you felt like you learned something from the electorate or like kind of like had something. I know that's like an idealized version of it, but like, I'm really curious if like, if it was all people yelling at you and telling you what a terrible job you were doing, or if it was like what it looked like from your perspective when you were, when you were doing it. Well, the, I guess the thing that stands out most is there was actually an opera written about my Twitter feed. Can we get Maggie to sing this for us? Okay, <laughs> tell, was, it, tell us everything. There's an opera? Well, I, I haven't seen it, but but um, 
Well, what happened was that uh, during the austerity, during the, the sort of the crisis of uh, the meltdown, uh, Paul Krugman wrote an article bashing Estonia, which I thought extremely uh, dishonest since he took a graph of the GDP of Estonia that uh, fix it, focused only on the sort of the basically half a year before the crisis and then the then the dramatic drop off saying see this is what austerity gets you without look actually looking at the whole range of the graph and the huge increase in GDP over the years so that actually the drop off seemed fairly minimal but that was basically uh, dishonest uh, I mean it was a dishonest piece if you publish a graph like that as I mean, it's kind of like the Wall Street Journal on stocks where you see something really going up, but in fact, it really hasn't very much. Uh, and so I sort of said some nasty comments to, to uh, in that process and uh, then this caused an, an uproar. And then someone made an opera about it? Yes. So, so I don't <laughs> You know, Estonia is a country of, what is it, about 1.3 million people? Yes. And so being the president of Estonia is like, has elements of being a head of state, which is to say you're a frontline state with the Russian Federation. They, you know, Putin famously had your bodyguard kidnapped along the border. I mean, it's a, it's a, like a serious uh, potential hotspot militarily. It also has elements that are, you know, you're governing a group of people that would be a mid-sized city in the United States. Yeah, we have and basically so one and a half degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> And so I, I think about like manning your own Twitter feed for that as being, it, it has all the dangers of doing it if you're, uh, you know, you can touch off a war if you say the wrong thing, but it's also a little bit like, you know, being a mayor and somebody's garbage hasn't pick, been picked up and they text you or they, they tweet at you. Um, if you were advising Joe Biden, what how he should operate his like obviously donald trump's twitter feed is not what the president of the united states should be doing for reasons we don't need to talk about but if you were going to try to advise a u.s president on what the optimal use of twitter is is it a boring staff run uh uh twitter feed like the ones you've been just dismissive of from other heads of state heads of government is it uh uh an un is it an unmediated communication like you were running that's mediated only by your own sense of decency instincts and good judgment or is it is there some other way you should be thinking about it like what should joe biden do with twitter if he gets elected well i would try to be as much joe biden as you can be um, and so, I mean, when you have an opinion on something, you should ha have an opinion, but do it in a, uh, I mean, he has a fairly open, honest style and I would continue that. Um, and then I would uh, have someone look over to make sure they're 
not too many solecisms or something because spell Nobel correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that's interesting because if you had, you wouldn't give that advice to Donald Trump because he obviously does that. He just continues to be as much Donald Trump as he would ever be. Uh, And I mean, I guess maybe, or maybe you would, maybe you would say the same thing. Maybe it's all about the authenticity of it. And that's kind of what people need and want to see. Well, I don't want to see that kind of authenticity. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's a little less authentic. (laughs) So you have a- I think- Sorry, go ahead. I I just, uh, you know, Twitter is, um, I avoid insulting people uh, unless they do it first. (laughs) So- You're a counter puncher. Yeah, well then I and I don't I don't I try to do it in a slightly more subtle way, sort of. So you have an exceedingly unusual background for a head of state, but one that was I, I think like couldn't have been better matched for somebody who confronted uh the issues that you confronted in your last couple of years in office which is that you're a, a, as i understand it a hardware engineer is no, that no, right? no 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 i'm not i just learned to code at a very early age oh i see um 15 but, so 50 years ago i learned to, to code but your but your cybersecurity expertise is not merely that of a policymaker. I mean, you you actually know a lot of cybersecurity. You you've thought pretty deeply about cyber. How did you get into that? Well, uh, much of it has to do with my uh, with the, the time before I was president, when uh, I had a brainwave in about 1993 when uh, we had this Estonian like much of the rest, almost all of the rest of the post-communist world was confronted with this huge gap in income, utter poverty that, um, so usually example I say in Estonia, our, um, we in Finland had more or less the same GDP per capita in 1938, when we were both independent and last full year before the war. And when we became independent again, the first full year, 1992, Finland had a GDP of about 24,000 US dollars and ours was 2,800, so like a huge gap. And uh, when it comes to development, of course, you're always faced with the uh, with Zeno's paradox of, of Achilles and the tortoise, that you'll never catch up because the, the tortoise, even though it's because it's ahead of you, it's still gonna be ahead of you. And so um, I had two things happen. One was that I, I did as a, as a 15 year old learn to code, which was a one-off weird experiment that my math teacher had. Can I ask how old you, like, or like what year that was, if you don't mind? 1969. Okay. And, Before it was um, cool. Yeah. Yeah, but it was a one-off experiment because my math teacher was doing a PhD in math education, and she she would she did this experiment with uh, some of the better math students, and most of whom are all rich now because they all went into IT. I didn't do that, obviously. So what what language did you learn? Did you learn Fortran? Basic, basic which is uh-huh. baby Fortran. 
Yeah. And I mean, and that it was continued to be useful because I went uh, when I went to I was an undergraduate. I saw this ad, you know, program a computer, and so uh, it was a PDP-8, which had eight K. It was called a PDP-8 because it had eight K of memory, which is an empty email these days. And I did, <laughs> and I had to program in uh, assembler language, which is hexadecimal, you know, sort of base sixteen. Um, anyway, I had that experience. And then I said, I thought that was, I mean, I didn't really do much with it, except that uh, I had that experience. And then in thinking in 1993 about where are we going to go? I said like, mm, well, maybe we could, maybe one way to get out of break this, break out of this trap of being behind is to digitize the country. And then another thing happened in 93, which was that, uh, Mosaic came out, which is the first web browser. There was nothing before that. Okay, HTTP had been invented in '89, but there was no web browser. And you know, back then you had to go buy it in Radio Shack for twenty nine ninety five and upload the the floppies. But I looked at this. And I said, "This is where we are on a level level playing field. Estonia is no more advanced than anyone else in this. And it could be the US or Japan or Germany or Estonia. Uh, we can start here. At the, we're starting at the same point. And since I was convinced that the world would go digital, I started promoting that. And so that's, so I spent a lot of time promoting digitization. And this was before we did the huge leap in like 99 2000 into the current system that we had but that's a different story which maybe we can talk about later but in any case so i've been like so i i can read code and i can understand it i'm not a i'm not a software engineer by any means but i'm also not intimidated by 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 it i guess so the other the second leg of the, when I think of the Thomas Ilvis stool, the three things that all come together in the stool. The, uh, no, the, 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 the table, the three-legged table. Okay. Okay. Well, um, you know. that, that one, when I think of the three, the three legs, the, the first leg is a kind of background in, in tech and a digitization thing. The second leg is a real savvy about Russia and its intentions. And the third leg is an interest in disinformation. And if you think about like, like what would you want in a head of state in 2016, yeah. that's kind of like the picture of the yeah. background. And so well, I'm, I'm would, interested in where the other two legs of the stool came from. Well, I would say that, uh, well, fundamentally, there's a, I mean, I don't know how to put them together, but I mean, I would say, one of the fundamental aspects of the way I've tried to approach both tech and all these other things is uh, kind of a uh, fundamental refuge, child of refugees, uh, obsession with liberal democracy. Um, and that that was that, because my parents were refugees, right? And you know, why, are you, why am I living in the United States? Well, the Nazis came, the commies came, you know, we ran away. <laughs> Oh, so what's what about it's communism, right? Well, communists are Nazis are people who shoot you. Communists are people who put you in a cattle car and deport you to Siberia. And so this was like me as a seven-year-old, and from there on in, I developed this 
fundamental interest in what it is that makes democracy democracy. And that accounts for following Russia and other authoritarianisms. And, um, and the disinformation part that just comes kind of like, <laughs> you know, partially what is truth? How do we know what is truth? What is, you know, it's kind of an epistemological interest uh, with, with sort of seeing it in action with the kind of, in, in the horrible effects of disinformation on liberal democracy, as we have seen in the past, uh, I would say, on a mass scale since uh, the uh, sort of the invasion occupation of Crimea, when it really began in its current sophisticated form, but which really did not hit the United States until two years later, but had already been going on for a while. And I guess in some sense kind of practiced the way, you know, the, the Nazis practiced in Spain during the civil war, perfecting their military techniques. I think a lot of the disinformation techniques that we saw um, after Crimea's invasion and now then were sort of brought in on a big scale to Western Europe or to Europe and to the United States. Though I should say that those techniques seem to have been already perfected within Russia. Cause I remember reading a paper about how disinformation was being funneled and created domestically in chat rooms and so forth within Russia to, to discredit opposition figures in the early, uh, early Putin era. So I have a couple questions. So one is that the like that you got a uh, we were kind of really excited to have you on in part because, um, we had Nate personally and um, and Alex Stamos on together to talk about um, mail in voting and the changeover in the U.S. to mail in voting. So Nate was primarily talking about yeah. that in the wake of the pandemic, and then in um, in relation to uh, to kind of the, the misinformation, disinformation. Alex was talking about misinformation and disinformation in elections in his research, um, and everyone kind of, your name came up like three times in the conversation. Is kind of like pioneering e voting and kind of that I um, that kind of uh, that in Estonia. And I mean, obviously it almost, and I, I'm, my impression is that Estonia, both because of its proximity and like the, the, its relationship with Russia was like probably a precursor to the type of like misinformation and disinformation campaigns um, through the internet on, on kind of on um, your elections. And so like a lot of questions all kind of wrapped up in that observation. But one of them is kind of like, what do you think if, can you, first of all, can you just tell us about how you set up or thought through e-voting in Estonia, how it worked, whether you think it think it was like ultimately successful, what the downsides were of that. Um, and then I just love to talk about how you think it could potentially be an answer, if at all, in this current environment of misinformation, disinformation, in, in the, at the scale, as like Ben said before, like the scale of something like the U.S., which is just so so uh, like absurdly different than Estonia. Okay, well, stop me when it gets too boring. But no, no, I, I'm like can't wait to hear this. Actually, <laughs> well, first of all, I would just say immediately just to keep the comments down uh, that uh, I do not think that um, i voting, internet voting, 
uh, can work in the United States right now. And I just gave a whole long interview to Poland where I said the same thing. And But the reason it doesn't won't work is that really the essence of Estonia's success comes from the security of the system uh, where the voting takes place sort of on an average of, you know, like an election every year. I mean, sort of over time. I mean, we have local elections, we have national elections, and then we have every five years we have a European election. So it's like, you know, I mean, every 10 months on average, we have an election and we can have years without elections, we can have years with two elections and so forth. The reason it works is because we have an ecosystem of digitization in the country where there are only three interactions between the individual and the state that you must show up for or cannot do digitally. Uh, first is getting married. <laughs> the second is getting divorced. You both have to show up at the same time. First part's pleasant, second one's not so much. And the third, <laughs> which is um, uh, in order to have a, a transfer of real property, you have the- uh, you A closing. Yeah, okay, a closing. Uh, you, uh, both parties have to show up and that is part of our, you know, we don't allow anonymous shell companies. There must be a representative of the board of directors of a company. I mean, it also holds true for individuals, but um, to, but the main, the main issue there is to avoid fraud. And uh, I mean, you know, when in the United States, you have two consiglieri of the biggest mafiosi in Russia, Semyon Mogilevich, buying a, apartments in Trump Tower, you might think that it's a good idea to make sure you know who's, who's who, right? Anyway, so, so we set up this- when, when they show up, you can serve them with the grand jury. So I was just going to say that. Was like, <laughs> seems like a good, easy way to make sure you can always serve someone if they want to do something significant. Uh, but, but the point, but in order to have that kind of system, you need a few things. And the things you need are a secure identity. That's already a no-go in the United States. I mean, a secure identity, everyone has an identity, a digital identity. It is authenticated by a two-factor authentication using end-to-end -end encryption. It is matched against the population registry. So we know you are you. And then of course, then you have the, I mean, which means that 99% of prescriptions and taxes and all these things are all done online. But, and as is almost everything else, just about, as I mentioned, all but three things can be done. And since the United States does not have a digital identity, uh, it does not have a population registry. In fact, I would argue that you could do it all in the United States at the state level, where most, which are mo where the level of most governance takes place anyways, at the state level. And you do have, so given the uh, obsession with automobiles that most of the adult population has a driver's license, but so you can make those your secure identity forms of identity, but even that is, does not happen. I would get really basic here. I mean, the, before we even get to digital, the absence in, in states of the US of a population registry, that is all people who live in your state, 
and their ages and citizenship, I mean, whether they're citizenship or not, is why the US still is, uh, is forced to use this relic of the 18th century known as voter registration. I mean, philosophically and constitutionally, if you are a citizen, you have the right to vote. Why the hell do you have to go and register, right? I mean, it's, it's absurd to me. And then of course, all of the shenanigans that are enabled by having people register, having to register and not allowing them to register or even worse, which strikes me. Well, as hold on, what do you think about the idea of a census? Like the census, does that stand in at any point for this type of like idea that you're talking about? Well, it could. But it I doesn't, mean, it, as the US currently, currently like makes use of it, it's not, is basically right. what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what you need is a, I mean, a population ready, but that gets everyone's backup or it seems to be a bit, uh, it seems We're very to be sensitive of, here in the United States. Yeah, I think it's an Anglo-Saxon obsession because you have the same problem in the UK and in Canada. Well, we did like base our entire laws off of their system of laws. So there's yeah. like that. <laughs> but, but, is, but is your but, point that you can't do, you can't even contemplate internet voting until you have an architecture of secure identification and trust between sort of trust between government and the population regarding how those secure IDs are actually used in interaction between citizens and government? Well, trust is the word, is that why do Estonians trust this system? And in the last election we had, which was to the European Parliament, 46% of the electorate voted online. Uh, but the thing is, you're going to trust that if you know your money has not been stolen, your personal data has not been stolen. Uh, I mean, if that works, then people say, okay, everything else works. I mean, the logic being, well, if no one's had their money stolen, then. So just tell us the straight up, like, how did you make, if okay, it can't work in the US, which is, I, I actually think that that's, you gave a great explanation for that. There's like no, like the, the idea of voter registration is kind of this administrative level of bullshit that makes it very hard to kind of like put that forward. And so like, which I, I'm there for that. I think that that's kind of correct. Um, but what, how did you make it? So you don't have that in Estonia, but like where, what happens like, what, how did you actually make it work? Like you certainly, like how, like what, how did you educate a populace about how to do this basically? Well, it, I mean, it took, it was a long time coming. I mean, one of the things was before we even introduced this, we had an, a number of initiatives on digitization versus schools. That was my proposal in 95, 96, which uh, I mean, and then I wish I spent a year being the uh, sort of the most hated person in the weekly newspaper of the teachers union. And but slowly, I mean, this had I mean, young people liked it. The banks liked it because uh, you know digitization allows you to get rid of brick and mortar uh, bank branches in small villages and so on. And then we got to the point where we realized that if this is really going to work, you need a secure system. And the secure system, as I said, aside from the technological aspects of it, which include a secure identity with, basically we have a token, everyone has a token. So you have um, two-factor authentication and you have uh, 
and then encryption and all of that technological stuff. But blockchain. I'm joking. That, that was that, a joke. <laughs> that, that, no, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. I, I'm very, I mean, I have this thing about blockchain because I think it's the very hyped in many ways. But we, in fact, uh, we're in agreement on that. But so. but but but, but uh, I'll, we'll come back to blockchain. Okay. Um, remind me. But in any case, so the, the key factor was the digital signature law that we passed in 2000. I was a foreign minister then, uh, which uh, makes a wet signature, as it were, equivalent to a digital signature, which allows you to do all of the transactions that uh, otherwise require a, a wet signature that is when you can really take off because suddenly you can sign contracts, you can do bank transfers, you can do all of those things extremely securely. Or to give an example, uh, I mean, which you can, I mean, first of all, I didn't understand. I mean, I think like, I'm not sure DocuSign would hold up in a single court of law in, at least in Europe, but I mean, I had this thing, I was asked to testify before the house and then, okay. And then they sent me a document beforehand called the truth in, testimony document. So they mailed it to my email address at Stanford. And then I, it was a PDF. I print out the PDF. I fill it out by hand. I walk it to the other end of the building where I can make a. Well, you uh, can scan it in back into a computer and send I, it to them. I hate this shit. It makes yes, no sense. Yeah, I mean, so whereas <laughs> a digital signature, I just sort of do it. Um, but anyway, so we had this digital signature law that in fact enabled your legal system to operate from that point on digitally. And then we began to do the next hard step, which is connecting everything to everything, following the laws and regulations of the country, but also cultural norms. So, I mean, you, you the police can look at your traffic record if they stop you, but they can't look at your health records and they can't look at you know, what any of, any of the other stuff. So those things, working out the architecture of the system took a long time. And even there, where How I long is a long time? Did it take like a year or take like five years? Like what was the long time? Well, I mean, it's, it's fine tuning took uh, uh, five, six, seven years. I mean, but, but I mean, the basic stuff you can do in the beginning, but uh, I think the important part also the cultural norms. For example, in my country, we have this belief that, um, okay, that um, your property is public. So everyone's, everyone's um, property records uh, are online. So people can look, which if you're a politician, they're always looking if you're, especially if they're trying to find something. The interesting part of it and what also contributes to the trust is mutual reciprocal uh, transparency, which is that while the yellow newspaper can see if say, let's see if Elvis bought, bought himself any property, I can look, I will go and see who's looked at my property records. Oh, that guy from that newspaper was looking. So. And this, this concept of, of um, mutual uh, reciprocal uh, transparency, I think also gives a lot of faith into the system. All right, so let's, uh, let's take a question, uh, a couple questions. 
so Ken Landa uh, posed an interesting question, but before I let you ask it, Ken, I wanna ask whether you are the anonymous attendee who has for the last four weeks been leaving excellent questions that we have been reading or whether that's somebody else. Or multiple people. Well, I, I, with the threat to my anonymity now uh, now fully engaged, yes, I'll admit that I've, uh, I've asked a few anonymous questions and very much appreciated participating. Oh, well, we're so glad to have you. Well, welcome uh, in your outed form. And uh, uh, please uh, go ahead and pose your question. Terrific, thanks so much. So uh, my question is two parts. One is I, I don't know how uh, Estonia is, is faring with the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was wondering if you could share with us uh, uh, an update on that. And also I'm wondering to what extent and how the e-Estonia movement and this sort of pervasive embrace of technology um, may have affected how Estonia is able to respond. Fabulous um, question. What's the answer? Okay, COVID is, we're doing more or less okay. And uh, we would be doing superbly had we not had a volleyball team from Bergamo, Italy, visit one of our islands for a championship. And basically the island is massively infected. So we have had 50 deaths out of, uh, 1.3 million. Um, uh, we're testing at a fairly high rate. Um, we're all in lockdown, or my compatriots are all in lockdown there. I'm in lockdown in Palo Alto. Um, where, I mean, one of the benefits of digitization is actually that the government has, or the, the apparatus of the state has not stopped functioning because you can do everything you need to do aside from getting married and divorced. <laughs> um, online, and that, that really takes uh, some of the pressure off uh, for people. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and so, I mean, we're, I think we, part of it's more broadly because of this culture of transparency and openness, we publish all kinds of detailed information every day on how many people, where they are, what their age groups are, you know, detailed graphs of positive and negative tests on people in every age group by in five year segments. I mean, this is, I mean, that's not a direct result of digitization. That's the kind of a result of a, a general pro-transparency attitude that we have. So the digitization, as I said, doesn't, I mean, it's, it's created more of a mindset. So one of the outcomes of this was that uh, a bunch of people immediately decided to do a hackathon, which is then copied by a number of other European states, which then grew into a worldwide hackathon on finding solutions to uh, necess I mean, solutions that to problems that were caused by COVID uh and then i mean i don't know how many great ideas we had from ours some of them are still in media rest but for example the latvians did one shortly thereafter and uh, a bunch of guys figure uh put on put out online the uh the code for printing face masks the kind of plastic ones that cover because there was a shortage of that and then 
So they went and designed the face mask, figured out how to do it, and then put out the code for it. I mean, you get these are the kind of things that come out of this uh, sort of digital mindset that is not only is not restricted just to Estonia, but certainly we're well known for it. So we have a question from the Big Blue Blogger, who has also outed himself a little bit for the first time. Uh, he seems to have identified his first name as Michael, in, if only in parentheses. So Big Blue Blogger, AKA Michael, uh, floor is yours. I may share my last name someday, Benjamin, but you're gonna have to earn it. Uh, Mr. President, you know, first of all- I'm still waiting <laughs> for the E in blue. <laughs> I can insert that at no charge. Uh, Mr. <laughs> President, first of all, thank you for all of your insights. I, I wanted to hit you with a little bit of a hypothetical and maybe tap you for some free consulting on behalf of America. Uh, let's say you were the president of a hypothetical superpower rather than a small vulnerable Baltic Republic, uh, a geopolitical adversary of Russia, but under no immediate physical threat of invasion. Uh, can you tell us what specific steps you would take to counter Russian election interference and their disinformation campaigns? Fabulous <laughs> question. <laughs> um, you know, but before you get to that, though, let, let me just ask you, uh, for, for listeners and watchers who don't know, describe your interactions with Putin. This is somebody who you've dealt with. Well, um, I, dealt, I dealt more with uh, Medvedev uh, than with Putin. But, um, well, it wasn't, a, I mean, we don't, we have never had a happy relationship with Russia. I mean, uh, that's an understatement. You really are very kind. <laughs> That's like everyone. What was it that he said about? He said someone wrote in to say that the kindest euphemism ever that he's ever heard was that you nominated lack of verbal facility to Trump's Twitter feed is the kindest euphemism ever. Yes, yeah, so we've never had a very friendly relationship with Russia. <laughs> well, I meant that overall, since um, well, while others have participated as well. I mean. Uh, and this will get to the blockchain issue, that over the thousand years we get invaded about twice a century, have been, uh, mainly from the East. But, you know, sometimes the Germans come or the Swedes or the Poles, but mainly Russia. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a longer standing problem if you're sort of um, in a uh, geographically appealing area. Um, out of that, that concern about being invaded, we in fact decided at one after the the, the Fukushima tsunami and the consequent meltdown of the of the uh, reactor there. I don't know due to which the meltdown or the tsunami, but in any way, Japan lost a certain amount of its national data that had been stored digitally. Uh, at which point we said, "Uh oh." <laughs> we did two things out of that. I mean, well, one we already we were doing earlier. We did two, we have done two things, and uh, I mean, data integrity and resilience become very important issues because once you get digital, um, you can do all kinds of damage. Uh, we, for example, no longer publish any of our laws on paper. 
nor do we publish our court cases on paper. But once you do that, of course, you don't, if you change, someone can go and hack you and change your law or someone can go and change the results of a court case. So we put all of those things on blockchain so that it's a private blockchain. It's not like, you know, but that's uh, like Bitcoin. a legitimate use of blockchain. That's like, that's not voting use of blockchain. That's like an actually you have something that you want to secure and only have a certain number of people that have access to the key right, like right. to be able to do that. Right. That's so. one thing. And the other thing we did was then uh, built uh, appealing to, I mean, as a lawyer, we appealing to the, um, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Immunity and Extraterritoriality. We made an agreement with... Uh, uh, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg to grant uh, extraterritoriality to a server. <laughs> so we have an embassy there that is only a server. We don't have enough money to man an embassy, but we have a server there. And so in real time, online, on a dedicated line, fully encrypted and all that, we have a constant updating of all our national records. Uh, in Luxembourg, so that once we, if we get invaded again, we have a complete, we have all the necessary records. Um, now that's I, getting far from Russia, but that's yeah. Well, so, so, so what would? But, but let's go back to to Michael's question. If you were advising uh, a sane president of a uh, of a hypothetical superpower. Um, what would be the thing that you would suggest that people that that policymakers do with respect to Russian electoral interference? Well, first of all, I would push back. I mean, that's the problem is that uh, for since you know already during the campaign in 2016, I mean, you had a presidential campaign that was buying into all of this, and actually, you know, if you say if you're listening, Russia, I mean. I mean, we're, if you're on that kind of footing with uh, with a with a country that clearly wants to undermine your power, then you're in trouble. Um, I mean, to the concept of fake news existed in 2016 before it was uh, hijacked to become an, a, a sort of a tool of attacking the free media in Estonia. I mean, in the United States. Sorry. I would uh, do a lot more education of this on these issues, debunking all kinds of um, debunking things that are being spread. For some reason, uh, I mean, I think, and I think I would also try to educate governance a lot more. I mean, the Jade Helm incident, I guess, 2015, where sort of uh, RT was promoting this thing about a US, um, I mean, it was a normal military exercise in Texas and uh, RT started saying this is going to be the black helicopters coming to take over. And unfortunately, the, gov the governor of Texas, who's still governor, bought into it and said, we're going to defend our rights here and not allow the federal government to do this, which is all based on a disinformation story from, from RT. Um, I mean, you need active... Uh, active uh, work on the part of uh, the the government to educate people that these things are not true and that these things are being purposefully spread. Um, how you deal with the uh, with the 
willing uh, collaborators. I mean, the people, I mean, I guess the classic case was the, uh, and it was in 2016 with the, with the two fake Facebook groups set up by the Russians, that one was anti-Islamic, the other one was pro, and then the face, and but the the, the but other than the Facebook page that was managed from Russia, I mean it, the followers were all Americans, and so and then they, I guess, attempted to create an incident by each group calling for an, a demonstration at the same time in the same place, which could have led to a kind of nasty confrontation, uh, those kind of things also need to be monitored. Um, and this may be a, a level of monitoring that uh, the United States is not ready for, but I think that- Well, I think the, the private platforms are doing that a lot and are getting more sophisticated about their ability to do that. Yeah, I think that like you're this, like you're kind of like hedging on it is not incorrect. I think that there's like areas in which that there is like, that it's, uh, but I'm very, I'm curious, two things. I mean, I have had for the most part, although I have now experienced three recessions in most of my adulthood, and so most of my adulthood is defined by various 10-year periods of the economy tanking, um, and that changing how, how, I, how I buy property or decide to get married or decide to do whatever, um, all of these types of things. Um, there's also kind of this thing that I have really taken for granted, which as an American, which is that like we've had 250 years kind of relatively of, of not being invaded until like probably nine in, until you kind of count 9-11 um, or besides the civil war, kind of any type of war on foreign soil or invasion from foreign soil. And so there's this, I'm very curious, like how that kind of affects like the ethos of a country and the ethos of governing a country. If your country is really thinks of itself as every 50 years, there will be some type of invasion. Like you say that is just so matter of fact, like for two centuries or a century, there has been an invasion every 50 years. Like, is that just, I mean, it feels like it was built into your governance regime of kind of how you thought of things a little bit. It's like, and it seems like a defensive position to be in. Well, it's not a constant obsession, but if you're worried about security, you worry about those things. And if you become digital, you worry about your digital security. Um, but the digital stuff seems very offensive. Like you're moving in this really brave new way in all of these aspects. Other countries are not doing all of this. Uh, but yet you're also talking about kind of having in mind, like kind of all of this being worried about, you know, other countries and like the instability that other countries could like wreak havoc on your system. No, I don't know. It's... Just the it... way it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess you have the second amendment in the United States that everyone is obsessed with. We're kind of, I don't say, I wouldn't say we're obsessed, but we do think about security in ways that clearly you do not in the United States. And I would say that much of, I mean, at least, you know, our, our neighbors, both to the North Finland and also Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, uh, we think about, you know, sort of people invading us because that's within living memory and uh, uh, people have grandparents who, or don't have grandparents, I mean, um, as the case may be, 
uh, so it's part of uh, it's part of your thinking. Um, and so that's that right. You're right. The United States is different in that regard. At least it has been up till now. I would say the nature of security, however, in the digital era has changed so dramatically that the with the benefit of the United States enjoyed until the 1940s was that it was isolated. I mean, it, there were oceans on either side and that prevented uh, invasions in ways that if you're France, it didn't, you didn't no. have that. No, you were kind of, you were kind of had like a mountain range and that was it. Like, so, but no, I think that's- But, but I think point. where we need to go, and this is the security issue of security in this new era. Okay, we already got ICBMs, people were worrying about that. But what is, I mean, one way to think about security in the digital era is that force, we, I mean, use of force uh, goes back to the definition of force as mass times acceleration. And in the digital era, there is no mass and there is no acceleration because the time element disappears. So the distance doesn't mean anything. Time doesn't mean anything. Mass doesn't mean anything. You can just as easily attack the United States digitally as you can attack you know, Estonia. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, this renders much of security thinking, which uh, in the kinetic era, which began with like, uh, say, the, the ape in 2001, sort of using the bone till, till 25 years ago, um, with moonlight maze or something. I mean, you can basically now attack countries in, in, in ways that render security thinking completely obsolete. Not that it goes away, but I mean, what is NATO? NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's the North Atlantic Treaty, or, Treaty Organization because, you know, it was like, okay, these are the countries that A, kind of are like us, and B, we think about tank logistics, bomber fueling, refueling, uh, bomber range, uh, fighter range, troop movements. All right, now that's not relevant. And we need to think about security much more, I think, on a, the basis of, uh, of uh, values that, uh, because I mean, why would, I mean, if you're going to think about cybersecurity, um, why would you do only NATO, but not include South Korea, Japan, and uh, Australia, New Zealand, for example, and then you get into the gray zone of, well, how much of a liberal democracy are you? You do you deserve our cyber umbrella or not? And why? And 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 if you're thinking in those terms, why isn't NATO backing up each other's uh, archives in much the way that you have, uh, you guys, you know, created a Luxembourg diplomatic outpost to back up your? I mean, like if you were thinking in those terms. NATO would be serving that function for uh, its member countries, right? Well, there is a problem with when it comes to cyber, which is that it grew out of the intelligence community. And that is based on not sharing and not cooperating. I mean, you have five eyes, but 
but and, and it's also it's also based on offensive operations as well as defense well but i mean okay but i mean it's even in the defensive side people don't want to give out information when it yeah. comes to uh to this realm i mean there's no there's no real intellectual ba basis for it other than the tradition is that i mean traditionally it was uh, gh whatever gchq it was nsa dsga i mean the intelligence agencies dealt with signals intelligence and and if that's what all of this grew out of then the idea of like let's share this it's it doesn't it does it's not in the thinking while it should be i would argue um as it is nato uh, i mean nato only we have been petitioning nato as allies of nato for several years to that cyber is an issue that you need to deal with and we were always blown off by them then in 2007 we got the massive cyber attacks on Estonia, which initially no one other than the Brits and the Americans didn't really believe. They said, oh, well, how can you prove it? Oh, you're just East Europeans. You're being Russophobic or something. I mean, because frankly, the people who are in the, in the NAC or the North Atlantic Council, which where the ambassadors meet every day, are, were not at the time really very tech savvy. So they didn't understand what a DDoS attack was and what had happened to us. Even today, the cybersecurity side is fairly limited, but at least there has been a center that um, was set up in Tallinn, Estonia right, for NATO to actually do research on this. But it's, it, it's a research center. It's not an operational center. Um, so and it's, it's not an and it's not an accident that it's in Tallinn. Well, I mean, since we've been petitioning for it and we <laughs> were victims of it, sort of ended up that way. That worked. So out. we've got, we've got time for one more question. I'm going to give it to Joel Woodward, uh, who uh, should unmute himself and and pose his question. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, my question is predicated on the idea that the security landscape that we've been discussing is based on encryption being a relatively solid technology but what i've been hearing recently and reading is is that quantum computing may uh really unearth the entire landscape and we may be talking about a very different paradigm in international security based on its uh really coming to market True. uh well i think we got about 10 years <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the current level of in, current uh, sort of uh, state of the art in encryption uh, works as long as no one has anything better. But if quantum computing comes comes on in a big way, then uh, that goes out the window. Uh, I mean, our current forms of encryption, um, you know, the the public key infrastructure of uh, Wiffy, Diffy, and, and uh, Heller. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, but but you can crack it once you get to. Uh, you will be able to crack it once we get that far. But we're not there. Uh, so I think uh, we're going to have to. Um, I, I feel assume... like it's always tech outrunning future tech. Like I hope that there is like the tech is going to come. 
we can kind of see that it's coming and there's, you know, yeah. I don't know. Do you feel that way? Well, I assume that people who worry about these things are realize that, uh, that, that a fundamental focus of, of research in quantum must be on encryption, maintaining encryption. I mean, a lot of people will be working on decrypting things, but I'm, I'm optimistic that there are smart people at MIT and other places that are worrying about uh, encryption in a quantum world. Yeah. Um, I'm too stupid to be able to deal with that, so I don't. But I, I, I hope that we have a lot of smart mathematicians working on it as well as physicists. Yes, this one hour conversation has completely solidified my belief that you are a total dumb dumb. Yeah, so um, uh, Tomas, stay safe and, um, and thank you for joining us. And uh, let's do it again sometime soon. We're doing, uh, we're doing this every day as long as we are in lockdown. Right. And so come join us anytime. Sure. Um, and um, Tomas, would you like to come back on with Alex and Nate? That would be great. Yeah, well, this is kind of like you want to get together with your next door neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're all really smart guys. You all are in the same town. But that's like. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you should get someone from elsewhere. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe, maybe, I mean, someone... maybe we should maybe we should get someone that you really want to mix it up with and have like a fight. Uh, Ilvis v. So and so, you know, duking it out about a cool issue that you're both interested in. We could bring back pugilism week. Who do you mm. have a bone to pick with? Well, I, I, I one recommendation would be I don't know how uh, is that uh, but not with me necessarily, but certainly have one on, on having say um, someone from one of the Silicon Valley tech companies with Yevgeny Morozov. I think that would, <laughs> that would be quite the fight, right? This Very is, fun. My only regret on this whole thing is that I have not had the opportunity to make a single bad pun. Well, you've got like 30 seconds. No, Do no, it. no. I just, it, it does, they have to throw them all they, in together right no, now. No, they have to develop organically. They, they come in or they come organically in some kind of subconscious process. Cause I think my corpus callosum and my brain has this weird parallel processing that whenever people talk, I hear something sort of the, the sound of it and then bad puns pop out. <laughs> we have that in common. It's like a real, it's a real, I like to think that it's a, it's a gift, but some other people don't see it as such. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, but in any case, I think it's great. Thank you. This is uh, wonderful. And um, well, let's do it again. <laughs> so Kate, who do we have for tomorrow? Uh, we have David Plotz tomorrow, the former editor-in-chief of Slate and the host of Slate Gabfest. And one of my oldest friends in Washington. Um, that'll be cool. And what is our sign-off for the day? Presumably in better taste than my sign-off from yesterday. Um, I didn't see there was any problem with your sign-off from yesterday. But, the um, brick them in sign-off? Oh, yeah, that was kind of bad. <laughs> Why'd you relive it just now? I gave you, you could have changed it. That was you your opportunity. Me an out. <laughs> and, um, I don't have, I'm going to work on a sign up for, uh, the sign up for today is um, um, 
one one person, one vote, one blockchain, ten thousand votes. I don't know. I'm trying. Like that's really bad. I that's can't. That's really bad, Kate. Sorry. Right. Sorry. <laughs> do better. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Thomas. I'll be... do better next time. We will All be right. back tomorrow uh, with bad puns, David Plotz, and uh, remember, until then, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still come hang out with us. Bye, Thomas. Thank you so All much right. for coming.